0: As you find your seat, open up your Bibles, please, to the Song of Solomon, chapter 6. Now, I need to tell you something about this evening's Bible study, because it's going to be just a little bit different. It'll be a bit longer than normal. I can't tell you why, but because in planning out for tonight's study, I, I would have been left with tonight's study and about half a study for next time, so I figured we'd just combine it and finish the book of the Song of Solomon this evening, So maybe we'll go a little bit longer than normal, but, but, but not too late. I don't want you to despair, but neither do I want you to despair when we go a little bit longer than normal. So Song of Solomon this evening, uh, beginning now at chapter 6. Now the thought carries over from the previous chapter, Song of Solomon chapter 5. We do recognize that the Song of Solomon is not a strictly sequential story. It's not as if it's a, a, a seamless chronology. It's sort of snapshots of a relationship that are put into place. But in certain places, there's a general flow of the chronology. And at the beginning of Song of Solomon chapter 5, we would see that the maiden has a dream. And whether or not she's married in the dream or she's dreaming when she would be married, it's kind of irrelevant. But the maiden has a dream. And in the dream, there's a problem with the relationship with her husband. Actually, the problem is mostly on her part. Uh, she's slow to respond. Uh, maybe she's feeling a little self-indulgent. He knocks at the door and she says, well, why should I get up? And, and, and anyway, by the time she gets to the door, he's gone. And, and this causes some anxiety within her. She, she ends up going about in the city. And again, we're not talking about a real story. This is poetry, but get the poetic imagery in your mind. She goes out into the city. She's pushed around a bit by the night watchmen and those who guard the walls. And she's looking for a beloved. And the daughters of Jerusalem basically say to her, again, this is back in chapter 5, last week's study. They say, oh, what's the big deal? What's so special about your guy? Perhaps are the implications. there's a lot of fish in the sea. Why are you chasing out after this one? And then she goes into this beautiful passage in Song of Solomon chapter 5, where she describes how wonderful her man is, her beloved is to her. Now, this follows on top of it now, beginning into chapter 6, verse 1. The daughters of Jerusalem say once again to the maiden who's searching for her beloved, Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? Hey, this sounds like an amazing guy. Let let us help you find him. Now, verses 2 and 3. My beloved, this is the maiden speaking, verses two and three. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Now this is fascinating. When she left the house in the midst of their troubled relation, she had no clue where he was. She searches about the city and gets you know, pushed around a bit by the watchman of the city, whatever. It's it's just sort of a poetic way of describing the troubles in her soul. The daughters of Jerusalem say, what's so special about this guy? She begins to describe how special her man is. And we see her heart awakening to him. It's as if she's remembering those character qualities in him. And what's so wonderful about him, she had to articulate them to someone else so that she could remember them. Now she's even remembering where he is. The daughter's, where is the guy? I know where he is. He's in his garden. That's what it says right there in verses two and three, verse two. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices. Now, previously in the Song of Solomon, chapter four, and the first verse of chapter five, the image of the garden was used to represent the sexuality of the maiden, Yet here, that definitely seems out of place. I mean, they're not together, they're separated. If the beloved had gone to his garden, then why did it seem that the maiden was still searching for him if the garden really represents her sexuality? It seems best to regard this as a simple reference to a literal garden and the maiden remembered that her beloved had a familiar outdoor place where he would go. They use the imagery of the shepherd with the beloved. Partially because kings were known as shepherds and it's just part of the poetry of it. So yeah, he's at this familiar place that he would go that would be like a garden. And notice, the maiden's previous search to the city accomplished nothing. It just got her pushed around and bruised a bit by the watchmen of the city. Yet now... When, in response to the question of the daughters of Jerusalem, what's so special about your guy? Where is he? Now she thinks about how wonderful her beloved is and where he might be. When she starts thinking that way, how can I get this guy? Then she figures it out. Her initial reaction to the relationship problems was entirely feeling-based and had very little thought behind the reaction. But when she began to think through the fundamentals of their relationship, such as, who is my beloved? What did I even find attractive about this man? Where can I find him? When she began to think through the fundamentals of the relationship, things began to make sense. Let me explain a very important principle, and I hope that nobody misunderstands me. But there's a great problem In the thinking of our present age. This isn't Christian thinking. This is present age thinking. But the thinking of the present age crowds in upon us because this is, so to speak, the water that we swim in it. You can ask the question, do fish know that they're wet? Well, do do we know that we're really influenced by the thinking of the age when it's all around us? Ladies and gentlemen, the thinking of the age tells us That thinking and understanding have no role in love. Love and a good marriage has nothing to do with thinking and understanding, it has to do just with feeling. Now, look, the the area where I hope I'm not misunderstood is I don't want anybody to misunderstand that feeling is an important and precious part of any romantic relationship. We're not down on feelings if they are allowed to dominate the relationship and really run it in every way, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. The Christian marriage is one that should give a strong place not only to feeling, but perhaps an even higher place to thinking and understanding. The world relies on mistaken ideas of romantic love and feelings to make marriage work. It never really makes a person think And understand about marriage. The Bible says thinking. And when the maiden began to think and understand. It's like a light turns on for her. I know where he is. He's there verse 2 to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather his lilies. When she thought about where her beloved would be. She remembered what he would be doing. He'd be doing his work. He's a shepherd. He's feeding his flock. And he's gathering lilies. What for? I, I don't know. Maybe for a little bouquet to take home. He's thinking of a way to show his love for me. I know what he's he's at work and he's gonna bring home flowers. So you could under say that the maiden understood some basic things that contributed to the restoration of the relationship. Number one, she understood and knew where he had gone to his favorite literal garden. Number two, She knew that though they were still separated, they belonged to each other, and she knew that her husband was like a gentle shepherd who would want to restore the relationship. Now, presumably, this man, the beloved, had given her reason to think all those things. And we're going to see a relationship put back together. That's why she says in verse three it's really touching. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. The remembrance of these things, who her beloved is, where he is, and and what he would be doing, it filled the maiden with a renewed sense of their connection and oneness with each other. This is, is what she wanted to have. It's the opposite of the attitude of perhaps self-indulgence and laziness that was shown on the first part of the Song of Solomon, chapter five. Now she's back where she wanted to be, but she got there not by focusing on her feelings, but by thinking and understanding. Now the feelings come into the picture. And what are the feelings coming in the picture saying? I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. I love him and he loves me. I belong to him and he belongs to me, which is an extremely powerful and healthy thing for any married relationship to know and walk in. Now, starting at verse four, I would title this section, the enjoyment of the restored relationship. Now the beloved is speaking. You know, they had this tiff, they got back together. He comes home with the flowers, so to speak. He gathered the lilies, he comes home. And this is what he says to her when she opens the door and he hands her the, the bouquet of lilies. Verse four. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tizra, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners, Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. Again, the words of the beloved, the husband, to his wife, to the maiden, they're together again. And the first thing he says, verse 4, Oh, my love. Darling, I know we've had a hard couple last few days, but I love you. You're so wonderful to me. And verse four, you're beautiful as Tizra, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. She must have been pretty good in the argument if he says you're awesome as bar, I mean, with banners. No, what he's doing is he's comparing her in her beauty and her stature to the noble and beautiful cities of Tizra and Jerusalem. And, and you're Impressive. Woman, wife, you impress me. You know, you, you, you see a, a mighty army with banners all laid out on the field of banners. You go, wow, that's impressive. Well, you, you impress me. I love it that in the husband here, there is not a hint of bitterness or unforgiveness of the beloved. There's none of this, well, are you gonna start respecting me again? There's none of this, well, come on, what's mine now? No, not a bit. There was a disruption of their relationship, and you could say, at least in the story of the Song of Solomon, it was largely her fault, yet the offended party in this relationship is quick to love, quick to forgive, quick to restore relationship. And isn't that one of the best pieces of advice anybody can have in relationship? Be quick to forgive, be quick to restore, be, be quick to rebuild things. Do not, as the book of Ephesians says, let the sun go down on your anger. Matter of fact, as he's heaping the praise upon her, look at what he says in verse 5. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. That's high praise. It's as if he says, look away. Your eyes are so beautiful and enchanting to me that I can't bear to look at them. Look away. it's I'm so overtaken by your beauty again we're we're just impressed by his his words of love and then he goes on into the description verse 5 your hair is like a flock of goats he continues to describe the maiden he uses many of the same images that were previously used in chapter 4 when she returned to him he told her the same kind of things that she told her that he told her on their wedding night It was his way of saying this, I love and value you now just as much as I did then. You're still my wonderful newlywed bride. Now, starting at verse 8, he's going to add some descriptions of praise to her. Look at it here, verse 8. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she that looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and awesome as an army with banners? Notice this. It's as if he's still speaking these sweet words to their wife as as they're making up here. And he says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. But then verse 9, my dove, my perfect one is the only one. Wife, I want you to know there's a lot of women out there, but you're the only one for me. That's it. Nobody else. Now... This goes beyond the description of the maiden's beauty that he said before on the wedding night that we saw back in chapter four. Here, he praises the maiden in comparison to other women. And I would just simply say this, that it is important, perhaps even vital, for a wife to not only feel beautiful, but pre. Prefer- deferred above others in the eyes of her husband. It's not enough to tell your wife, well, baby, you're beautiful. You know, there's a lot of beautiful women out there, but you're one of them. You really are. That's not enough. That doesn't give much assurance to a wife, doesn't it? What she needs to know, both verbally and by a husband's actions, is you remain my chosen one. I would choose you all over again and I do choose you again every day. doesn't matter how many other women are out there. It doesn't matter if there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. You are my only one. I suppose, and never having been a woman, I can't say exactly, but I would suppose that it would be a great burden for a wife to live under if she had to live with the feeling that my husband would always really rather have somebody else. Well, first of all, husband, you got to settle it in your mind that that's not true. But then secondly, you need to communicate it in every way possible. Now, it is true that in verse eight, when it brings up the queens and the concubines and the virgins without number, the mention of these other women brings up a complication in our understanding of the song of solomon it makes us wonder when did solomon write this book we know from first kings chapter 11 verse 3 that at solomon's height of his kingdom he had 700 wives and 300 concubines but yet The beauty and the intensity of the romantic love that's described in the Song of Solomon, it doesn't seem to come from a man who had to spread his affection among a 1,000 women. No, no, no. And by the way, please remember that the 1,000 legal partners, a concubine was like a legal mistress, an official mistress. The 1,000 legal partners that Solomon had they led his heart astray into idolatry. It it was terrible for him in every way. So when did Solomon write this book? Well, perhaps Solomon wrote this as a young man on the occasion of his first love. I mean, look, if you got 700 wives, one of them has to be first. And, And maybe this was his first love, his pure love. Maybe as was the custom of the day, he began adding wives just because of politics. You know, look, I got to make an arrangement with the king of whatsoever. And so I need to take, you know, his daughter into my, you know, and and make all these excuses and rationalizations. But whatever the reason was, there had to be one. And it's possible that this really expresses his love towards the first one. And, And if that's the case, then the mention of the queens and concubines and virgins here in verse eight, it's just theoretical. He goes, there could be all those other women out there but it doesn't matter and that's possible it's also possible that Solomon wrote this as a middle-aged man with many wives and concubines though maybe he wrote it somewhat early in the count meaning that he wrote this as an ideal that he didn't actually live or benefit from then the reference to queens and concubines and virgins is literal I don't know, it could be one of those two, but I'll suggest a third possibility. And all I mention these two is possibilities. He could have wrote it as a young man. He could have wrote it as a a middle-aged man. I think perhaps he wrote it as an older man. I think perhaps Solomon wrote this as a man late in life having tasted the good, having tasted the ideal, but wasting the vast majority of his life upon foolish romances and sexual liaisons. And he wrote this remembering the ideal thing that he had. And he said, even if I didn't have it myself because I ruined my life with foolishness, I can promote this ideal to other people and hope that they can live what I did not then the reference to queens and concubines and virgins would be theoretical in this sense. But notice, the main point of this is, I would choose you all over again. It doesn't matter how many, I'm I'm not looking around for anybody else. It doesn't matter whoever else is out there. I would choose you again and I choose you today. When a wife is assured of that, What amazing peace and confidence it gives to her soul. And husbands not only need to feel it, but they need to be able to express it so that the wife is secure in that. One other thing that I always bring up when I talk about Solomon and his thousand wives, and I'll just say this in passing before we move on to to just noting some of the ways that he describes his maiden. But I, I always want to point out, because I think it's important, one of the most important lessons of Solomon and his thousand wives is this 700 wives, 300 concubines, but a thousand legal partners. The lesson is this Men, if one woman isn't enough for you, a thousand won't be enough. That's the lesson. The problem isn't with your wife, the problem's with you. God engineered you with the capability and the capacity to be at complete peace and at complete rest and at complete happiness with one woman. But I'll tell you, if you go around your whole life thinking, well, she's the problem. I just need to get another one. If one woman isn't enough for you, a thousand won't be enough. And that was Solomon's life. In any regard, you just love how he speaks about her. Verse 9, the daughter saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines. He's noticing other people see how wonderful you are, sweetheart. And then he says in verse 10, you're fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. This is just high and poetic praise. He's assuring the maiden that a relationship is truly reconciled. There's no lingering bitterness. There's no withheld forgiveness. Man, they are back together and it's beautiful. Now, verse 11, the maiden describes a a rendezvous now with her beloved. I, I don't know if this is a continuation or another snapshot. You know, sometimes it's a little bit hard to tell in the Song of Solomon. I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had blossomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. So uh, presumably, this is the garden where they used to like to meet. She goes there to see whether spring is in bloom. The sense we have is Now that they've reconciled, it's springtime once again in their relationship. Things are beautiful and full of life, and it's just a wonderful time. And then she says in verse 12, before I was even aware, my soul has made me as the chariots of my noble people. There's an exhilarating rush that comes back to her soul. She feels like she's traveling in a fast chariot. Now look, you and I, we're spoiled by our modern age. You can hop on a scooter and go 40 miles an hour down the street and it's like, woo, it feels great. You know, the wind in your hair and all that. Think of how rare it was in the ancient world for them to have that exhilaration of speed and movement. I mean, a chariot, maybe a fast horse was about all you would have. And so this is, she, she's trying to describe the exhilaration that came in her soul. She'd say, man, I was, I was like in a, in a convertible on a perfect day with the top down. And it was just great. You know, that, the, the movement, the rush of it all. That's what she's trying to express. You know what's great? She has this feeling, this sense, after difficult times in their relationship. You know what the devil will try to tell a couple Either the husband or the wife or both of them when they have a difficult season in their relationship. It's never going to be good again. You'll never have that feeling of exhilaration and love and satisfaction in your relationship. It's gone. Let me tell you, that's a lie from Satan. It absolutely is. Here, after their difficult time, she's saying just how exhilarating it was once again. And now verse 13, the first part of it, The daughters of Jerusalem are speaking to the maiden. Return, return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon you. Uh, Again they're saying, Well, listen, we're, we're glad, you know, you're being swept away in the chariot. Come back. And then the end of verse 13. What would you see in the Shulamite? As it were, the dance of the two camps. She's responding to the daughters of Jerusalem, well, what what did you want to see? It's like she's waving goodbye on this chariot that she's being swept away and She has this sense of exhilaration. Well, what did you want to see? The dance of the two camps? Now, it's a little bit hard to understand exactly what this dance of the two camps is. Perhaps it refers to a literal dance. Some people think that the maiden was dancing and calling out to the daughters of Jerusalem. Um... But what's a little bit strange about it, and again, this is poetry. We don't have to reconstruct everything as if it was an actual story. But in this poetic story, it flows into ver, uh, chapter 7, where it seems that the beloved and the maiden are alone, but there's still kind of the concept of the dance. Because notice what he notices first about the maiden here in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of your hands are like a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. You see, when he says in verse 1, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. It begins another extended section where he's going to praise the beauty of the maiden. You know, they come back and I I don't know exactly how it relates to the daughters of Jerusalem. And again, we're, we're not stressing the literal of this. This is a poetic picture, but now it seems they're alone. And the beloved is praising her beauty once again, beginning with her feet and those great sandals, kind of an encouragement to any woman who's into shoes. It's like, here it is right here in the Song of Solomon. I need to take care of my feet and I need to have good sandals right here. But here... As he describes her, he's speaking fairly intimately. He's describing her thighs, her navel, her waist, her breasts. It doesn't seem like they're out together with the daughters of Jerusalem. It seems like this is a private exchange between the couple. But I think what's most interesting about this is this is the third extended description of the maiden's beauty. Uh, Previously we saw it in Song of Solomon chapter 4 and in chapter 6 and these three descriptions may be compared to the single description of the beloved's appearance which wasn't even spoken to the beloved himself. And in the first description of beauty, that's on the context of the wedding night. In the second description of beauty, it's in the context of restoring relationship. But now, the third description of beauty, it's sort of assuring the maiden of a deepening love. And as the maiden dance, he says, how beautiful are your feet, the curves of your thigh. Verse 2, your navel, your waist. And then in verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns. That's an image repeated from Song of Solomon, chapter 4. There as well as there, the emphasis seems to be on the idea that the maiden's breasts are innocent and attractive as young deer as well as being matching in form and in beauty. And, and just like before, if you read, especially in the old commentators, they about have a heart attack when the writer of the Song of Solomon refers to the breasts of the maiden. And, and they say it just must refer to anything except the actual breasts of, of a woman the Old and New Testaments, uh, Moses and Elijah, uh, you know, Mount Sinai, Mount, you know, whatever. It's it just, you know, they, they get a little crazy with their descriptions there. But he's simply describing her. but he's not done describing her. Look at verses 4 and 5. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. Now, of course, it's always amusing in our present age we look back at this and think well what kind of description would this be you know you look uh, of a woman with an elongated neck like a giraffe her neck's like a tower Uh, her nose is like some kind of mountain or nebula what I mean what kind of woman is this but in that day he's describing her in terms of great beauty but not just beauty but dignity and nobility This is so much more than you're so hot. It really is. It's so much more than that. He sees things in her character, in her being that he praises. Just take that first reference where it says, your neck is like an ivory tower. The idea of the neck, it isn't trying to communicate that it was long and thin, but rather it it had nobility and strength of character. She, she's a woman of class and poise and presence. When it talks about the nose being like the Tower of Lebanon, it, it's not a literal tower, but a hill or a mountain whose white cliffs looked out towards Damascus, it's probably a reference more to the color, the white color. You you have a beautiful pale appearance, which is prized in that culture. Your head counts Your king is held captive by your tresses. You, You have a royal dignity and bearing to yourself. Now, what's fascinating about this? On their wedding night, he praised her appearance and listed seven things. Now... They've been together a while. They've worked through some problems in their relationship. How many items does he list to praise her beauty? Ten things. She has only become more beautiful and more precious to him through the years. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how it should work in a relationship. Not only on a husband's part towards his wife, that's the focus here, but it should also work the other way. When a marriage works right, the years give us more to appreciate about our spouse. The list becomes longer, not shorter. His list is longer later in the relationship, and that's a beautiful pattern. Now, verse six How fair and how pleasant you are, O love with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I'll go up on the palm tree and take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. You see, now the beloved is speaking more directly to the maiden about how attractive she is to him and the desire that he has for her. I mean, look at what he says in verse 6. With your delight. He goes, I'm delighted with you. You're so attractive to me. Now, you, you wonder how the maiden receives this. I, I'm sure she's delighted to hear it. Maybe she has a hard time believing it. Sometimes it's hard for a woman to believe nice things that her husband says to her or about her but there's sort of a pattern there and if I could just take the spiritual analogy just for a moment doesn't Jesus want to tell his people lovely beautiful things about them and don't we sometimes have a hard time believing them Look, I, I know that in the church as a whole, we look out about the church in the Western world today. So I'm not speaking about a specific congregation, but the church in general. There's lots of problems. There's lots of flaws. But I think anytime we take the perspective that God is basically ticked off at his church all the time, you know what? I don't buy it. I I don't see that illustrated by the Song of Solomon. He's not blind to her flaws. But even so, Jesus would love to tell his church and us individually as his bride how beautiful we are and how much he loves us. And it's almost like, no, no, I can't believe, I can't receive it, no, you're you're not being truthful. we're, We're really hideous, aren't we, Jesus? He says, no. I love you. You're beautiful to me. I delight in you. No, no, it can't be. I got so many flaws. Look at all my flaws. Jesus, I see them. But I'll see how beautiful you are in me. Well, it goes on. It's a powerful description. Uh, Your stature's like a palm tree. Verse eight, and your breasts like its clusters. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine. He he saw the great character and beauty of his maiden. He wanted her. I mean, he wanted to make out. This, this I mean, it's completely appropriate. I mean, this fits. The the husband sees his wife for all of her goodness, for all of her beauty, and it's like, we need to enjoy this together. This isn't like some cold, detached thing where he's just writing love poems and running away. He wants the love to be consummated and enjoyed together, not just verbally, not just emotionally, but physically as well. Solomon had advice with the same spirit in the book of Proverbs. You you know Proverbs chapter five, verses 19 and 20? Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and as a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Well, why indeed? God meant this love, not only verbally, not only emotionally, but also physically and sexually to be enjoyed between a husband and wife. And this is what it's talking about right here. Here here we have an indication that the couple has grown and matured in the sharing of their love. And I hope nobody takes this in the wrong way, but it's just something we notice, at least the indication from the text of the Song of Solomon. You see, on the wedding night, the the beloved was super delicate and slow towards his maiden. Here they've been married a while. He's more direct. The the, the relationship will bear it. And, And he just understands who she is and where they are at together in their relationship. So here, she's like, well, let, let's go forward. Look at the middle here of verse 9. Uh, the maiden is speaking now. She says, the, the wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved, and his desire is towards me. You know, the idea is them asleep together, perhaps embracing one another. They're, they're refreshed in their love together. Perhaps they've made love, and they're just now enjoying sleep together. But she's so confident in this. Verse 10 I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. She's completely secure in his love. She understands that his desire, it's not a demand, it's not a burden, but it's wonderfully appropriate. She's in this wonderful, perfect place that a wife should be if the husband knows what he's doing, where she says, I love to give myself to this man. It's so perfect and appropriate. I feel so safe with him. Now verse 11, come my beloved, let us go forth to the field, let us lodge in the villages, let us skip early to the vineyards, let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love, the mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner new and old which I have laid up for you, my beloved. Let's get away for a weekend. Let, let's go out. We'll we'll get a bed and breakfast and we'll just enjoy. We'll have a, a, a relaxed weekend. we'll walk through the fields. We'll we'll go to the farmers' stands. We'll just it, it it's just she is calling on him. I love you, let's get away, let's just enjoy time together. That's her response. And we just see this beautiful love. Now, can I remind you? This all and we love this part of the Song of Solomon. It's like so beautiful. It's like who, who doesn't love that idea of let's get away for the weekend and just enjoy and we'll, we'll take nice long walks and we'll eat some good meals together and we'll just, we'll stop by the farmer's market and all that stuff together. Okay, that's all just beautiful. But remember, this came after the season of difficulty. Seasons of difficulty, if they are tenaciously fought through, and I mean fighting together, not fighting against one another, but if they're fought through side by side by the husband and wife, they bring the relationship to a better and deeper place. This, this is a better love than the wedding night. Now the wedding night was amazing. But this, you sense a maturity and a depth and just a wonderful blessing upon their love. Now chapter eight, the maiden is expressing her passion for her beloved. Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I'd lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to instruct me that I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. You read this, you go, what? I wish you were my brother so I could kiss you? What is this? Some hillbilly song of Solomon? No, 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 no. Remember, this comes from a culture where displays of affection, even between a husband and wife, were often not permitted at all, but what was permitted was displays of affection publicly between family members. You know, a a, a, uh, a brother could publicly kiss his sister on the cheek, maybe even a way that a husband and wife couldn't in these ancient cultures. So she's like saying... Man, if you were my brother, we could publicly display our affection with even greater liberty. That's just the idea there. And again, she's just enraptured with their love. And let's get away. And There's something pure and beautiful. Listen, when she says, I bring you to the house of my mother, she's talking about the purity and the goodness of their love. She wanted to enjoy the intimacy of married love with her beloved, but only in the context of approval of their family. Now verse 3. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. This uh, little section of these two verses, it appears a few times in the Song of Songs, and it seems to refer to the couple being intimate. With, with the woman enjoying the intimate caresses of his right hand, uh, they're there together lying side by side. And the idea there is do not wake, stir up, nor awaken love until it pleases. It's like let our lovemaking continue without interruption until we're bold fulfilled. Don't let us start until we can go all the way. It's it's really a very provocative and a very, very intimate term there. Well, now with verse 5 of the last chapter of the Song of Solomon, we seem to move to some final words Uh, Again, the snapshots are getting a little bit smaller and just kind of get thrown up there on the wall. First, there's a relative or an observer, we're not really sure, who speaks to the loving couple in verse five. And he says, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Uh, I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. So it's as if some relative or an observer sees the couple coming and, and points out, who is this who's leaning upon her beloved? It's as if the maiden, they're walking side by side, but she's leaning on the beloved. And it's really kind of a beautiful picture. Some commentators have thought, well, this is the couple in old age. You know, and there, the, the, the beloved, the man, is supporting his perhaps elderly wife and just helping her walk along. And that, I suppose that could be, but, but it's really a beautiful picture there. She simply accompanies her beloved and walks with them in the closeness that's characteristic of a husband and wife. Now, of course, um, if we're talking about these suggestions of our own relationship with Jesus, I I don't think I've said it tonight, so let me say it just so everybody's clear on this. The, The fundamental purpose of the Song of Solomon is not to illustrate the believer's relationship with Jesus Christ, The fundamental reason of it is to show the beauty and the power and and, and give us some instruction and guidance on healthy marital love, the glory of romantic love. That's the purpose of it. But it does also illustrate for us some of the principles regarding our own relationship with Jesus. And isn't this one of them that we need to lean upon Jesus as we walk through life? I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, quote, beloved. There is no part of the pilgrimage of a saint in which he can afford to walk in any other way but in the way of leaning. He comes up at the first and comes up at the last still leaning, still leaning upon Christ Jesus. Yes, and leaning more and more heavily upon Christ the older that he goes. So as we walk this path of life, we need to do it leaning upon Jesus. Now the maiden is going to describe the strength on her love, verses six and seven. And I have to tell you just personally, these are some of my favorite verses of the entire book. As the maiden describes the strength of their love, she says, verse six. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are the flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. This is uh, some wonderful poetry where she describes the strength and the power of marrow to love first like a seal Married love should be like a seal, not the kind of seal that you see at SeaWorld. A seal like that would seal a document or something important that would be stamped upon, something to give security. Married love should be like a seal in that it speaks of permanence and belonging and security. But then married love should also be, notice he says, as strong as death. Love was like death in its permanence and strength. Death is strong enough to make every man answer to it, and love is the same way. By the way, the strength of romantic love has been shown to be stronger than many of the strongest men in history. Samson, pretty strong guy in the muscle department, he wasn't stronger than love. Love brought him down. Jealousy as cruel as the grave It's a little hard to know if this is in a positive or a negative sense because, ladies and gentlemen, there is an appropriate jealousy in marriage and there is an inappropriate jealousy in marriage. An appropriate jealousy in marriage just simply says, I belong to you and you belong to me and that's just how it's going to be. An inappropriate jealousy is filled with all kinds of suspicions and conspiracies and, 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 and we should have a jealousy Uh, in an appropriate way in our married relationship. And then in verse six, he talks about love being like the flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Love has great power and usefulness for good, like fire, but for destruction. Isn't that a powerful thing to say that love is like fire? Is fire good? Look, it's amazing on your stove. It made you dinner tonight. Uh, You let it loose out in the hills Uh, it can do tremendous destruction, can it not? And then he says in verse seven, if a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Here he's quoting the Beatles. Can't buy me love, right? Isn't that it? It's the same thought. Love has its own economy and it's often very different from normal financial reckonings. Matter of fact, if a man did give for love all the wealth of his house, he he would be considered a fool. He would be despised for reducing love and the person from which it comes as an object. Love can't be bought or sold. Sex perhaps, but not love. And in all of these things, he gives us four remarkable pictures of love. Love is like a seal on the heart and the arm. Therefore, Love belongs to those who are willing to give something of themselves to someone else. Secondly, love is like death in that it's persistent and it keeps reaching out. It's total and irreversible. Therefore, the bond of love needs to be nourished and regarded as permanent. Love is like a raging fire. It can't be extinguished. Therefore, we need to take care as to where the fire of love will be kindled. And we need to keep the spark of love under proper control. And finally, love cannot be bought or sold. It's not a piece of merchandise. Love must be appreciated for its own great value and never taken for granted. When we understand the great value of romantic love in a marriage, you can't buy it. Look, uh, I, I don't know, you know, the state of every marriage here tonight, of course. And of course, not all of you are married. But, but if you consider this, if you have a good marriage, I'm not talking about perfect. Perfect marriage here doesn't exist. But if you have a good marriage, you should really thank God for it and not take it for granted. You literally have something that cannot be bought with a billion dollars. And it's something that should make us feel very grateful towards God and not taking it for granted. Verses 8 and 9 seems to be the words of the maiden's brothers uh, we have a little sister and she has no breast. What shall we do for our sister in the day that she's spoken for? If she's a wall, we'll build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we'll enclose her with boards of cedar. It seems that the idea here in this brief snapshot, the maiden's brothers are speaking and they're speaking of the maiden when she was young. And she's speaking of her before she really hit puberty, before she had breasts, so to speak. And they thought about her and they protected her and her honor and her virginity. And she's saying, they're thinking about it, verse nine, what shall we do for our sister in the day when she's spoken for? What can we do to prepare her and to um, uh, make her ready for her eventual marriage? And this is what they said. They said in verse nine, If she's a wall, we'll build upon her. And if she's a door, we will enclose her. You see, the brothers wisely decided to guide and help their sister according to her own character and choices. If she were like a wall that stood effectively against anybody who would exploit her, Well, then we're going to reward and encourage her and build upon her. That's the kind of woman she is. But if she were more like a door who might allow unwise access to her life, then they would restrict her freedoms in her own self-interest. We will enclose her. It's really speaking in a sense of parenting, in the sense of reading the young woman or the young man, seeing what kind of character they're at, and saying, well, if they're of this kind of character, I'll encourage this, or if they're of that kind of character, I'll encourage that. But having a view that their virginity is to be valued, and whatever we can do to prepare them for future marital happiness, we can do that. Now, verse 10, the maiden is going to answer her brothers. She says, I'm a wall and my breasts are like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. See, in response to the statement of the brothers, the maiden, but, you know, perhaps she's speaking in retrospect again. She says, no, um, I am like this wall that you speak of. I do have the strength of towers, But by the way, the description, my breasts are like towers, it doesn't intend to describe the appearance of her figure, but it's just connecting the idea of the wall to the previous verse. Her honor is strongly defended. That's the idea. And then she says, and this is beautiful in verse 10, then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. This describes her married state. And husbands... This is what we should strive for in our wife. That she would have peace. In our eyes she would have peace. She would be able to look into our eyes and find peace. Not look in our eyes and see secrets that aren't being spoken. Not look into our eyes and find a wandering eye for someone or something else. But to be able to look into the eyes of her husband and find peace the preparation that the brothers helped pour into her as a young maiden, this helped contribute towards that. And now, verses 11 and 12, the maiden will declare her own value. She says, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. Well, what what is it really speaking of? Again, it's just simply speaking of she understands the value of her own personhood. She saw value in her virginity. More importantly, she saw value in herself. She wasn't to be cheaply and easily given away. So what did she do? She found a man who would truly value her. And this made for a happy married life. Now notice... Both in the reaction of the brothers and in her reaction, there's this underlying current of the value of her virginity. And friends, I have to say that whenever I speak on this, I feel conflicted because the Bible definitely presents the concept that virginity is something that is to be valued. And our culture, as well as secular culture in the days of the Bible, it despises virginity. Virginity is something to be ashamed of in biblical, excuse me, in in extra biblical thinking, the, the worldly thinking of our day and in biblical times. It is good and appropriate for us as believers to promote the value of virginity. But when I do that, I think of how without intention, Satan can use that to bring despair and destruction because I have heard from more than one person, well, my virginity is already ruined, what's the use? That is the devil's talk. Because as much as I believe in the value of virginity, I also believe very strongly in the concept of what you might call a restored or a reconsecrated virginity, which is a very precious thing, not only to God, but to a person's future spouse. To be able to say, there was a time in my life when I was perhaps foolish and disobedient, but God got a hold of me, and I want you to know that from this time forward, I've been faithful unto God and dedicated unto him and to my future partner. That is so precious in the eyes of God. So do you see, as a preacher, a bit of the conflict that you go through? Yes, is it a good thing to promote the value of virginity? Yes, but never in a way that would make a person feel that if through their uh, either foolish choices or sometimes in a cruel way it's been forced upon them, if they have lost their virginity, that it's all ruined and there's no point in going for it. No, no, not at all, not at all at all. Nobody should have that thought. Going on now to verse 13. You who dwell in the gardens, let the companions hear your voice. Let me hear it. It seems here that the beloved is addressing the maiden with this. She said, speak to me. Let me hear your voice. And then this is what she says. Verse 14. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of my spices, of, of spices again. These last two verses speak of the power again of the beloved calling out to the maiden and her responding by saying, let's be together. You see, the song of Solomon closes with the same sense of passion and intensity that it opened with. Even though they pass through the years and they pass through a lot of different ups and downs in their relationship, there's still a passion. There's still a great matured love between them. And it says simply, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. Um, Here, the similar idea is stated as stated before. The idea that he's young, young, He's energetic, he's strong, he's virile. This is how I see my man. And, and it's kind of a poetic thing. We sense that at the end of the Song of Solomon, years have passed. Yet their relationship has been of such a quality that um, as she sees him, she still sees him as the young, strong you know, capable man that that he more accurately displayed in his younger years. But now his strength is displayed in probably different ways, but it's still wonderful and she still declares it. I know you almost have a little bit of the sense here at the end when they praise each other and tell each other how wonderful they are. Part of that dynamic that goes on with a couple that um, as the wrinkles increase between a man and a woman, the eyesight gets worse too. And, and so it's just kind of a wash and it, it just works together beautifully. And, and But that, that's kind of the dynamic of going on. It's just we're getting older together but the love is even greater because even though there's an appreciation of physical form and beauty, the relationship goes much, much deeper than that. That's a that's what we have to look forward to as we dedicate our lives and our marriages to the Lord and I'll just close with this Um, my heart always goes out to anybody in we studying the song of Solomon uh, who's not married Uh, most people who aren't married would would like to be not all of course and I think well what's in here for me Do I just got to spiritualize it all between me and Jesus? And look, there's some area to do that for sure. We've talked about that. But you know, there is a very real anticipation say, Lord, if this describes so many of the dynamics of a healthy and strong marriage, would you work in me to be that kind of person? And not to lose sight and to despair. Um, Christianity is not like Judaism in the sense That Judaism had virtually no place for singleness. Where Christianity um, exalts and and regards singleness as a special calling and a special place before the Lord. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was a single man. And, And that the single person would see whatever calling and place that God would build into them, and if they ever should be married, that it would be like this in its fullness. Because they have been so taught and consecrated by the Lord. Father, this is our prayer. Um, I pray, Lord, for marriages represented here tonight and in our entire congregation. Lord, we see this in the Song of Solomon, the idea of marriages built for the long haul, Lord. For the decades, not for the months. And Father, we pray that you would build that within us. Jesus, I pray as well that you would help us, uh, those of us who are single, and we still think, Lord, about what you would have for us, perhaps in a future married state. Well, Lord, just speak to each individual about their calling to singleness, whether it be temporary or permanent, and what you want to do in and through their life right now in this season of calling. But Lord, finally... um, We do see this, Lord, as an analogy, a picture of our relationship with you. Jesus, help us to lean on you and to trust you and to love you and to believe you when you say how much you love us. We give you honor and praise this evening in Jesus' wonderful name. Mm -hmm.